Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. I'm so excited for today's episode with Brian Muarescu. Brian is the author of a book that I was completely captivated by and which sparked my going down many other fascinating rabbit holes. It's called The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. In it, Brian dives into the role psychedelics potentially played in the foundations of religion as we know it today. He explores the evidence around holy beer and wine that is believed to have been spiked with mind-altering drugs meant to produce an unmediated experience with God. Brian draws on the provocative work of Gordon Wasson, Albert Hoffman, and Carl Ruck in the 1970s, among many others, and through 12 years of his own exploration, which included spelunking into the catacombs under the streets of Rome and spending time in the secret archives of the Vatican. He unearths mesmerizing evidence about the potential use of psychedelics and religious experiences and other suppressed information, including that women in many ways were fundamental to the origin and survival of Christianity, in part because of their connection to making of these holy concoctions. In our chat, he gives us a look into all that's been discovered and what it could mean for our world today. If these were the foundations of religion as we know it, what does the future look like and what comes next? I will never forget the one-liner in there, about two-thirds of the volunteers walking away from their single experience of psilocybin, saying it was among the most meaningful experiences of their entire lives. Because when I hear language like that, I immediately think about Plato saying how he witnessed this vision at Eleusis in a state of perfection. Or I think about Cicero again, saying that this was the most divine thing Athens ever produced. Okay, let's get to my chat with Brian Muarescu. Well, congratulations on your book. I can only imagine how long it took you to do this. 
Yeah, well, the honest answer is about 12 years. At least that's how I write it. If, if I look back over the, the long term, in some ways it began when I was 14, studying Latin. And if you ask other folks, it could have been my entire life, but I'd say at least the past 12 years. And so just to sort of orient people on where we are, you yourself have yet to do psychedelics, but you're sort of a good Catholic boy who went to Brown, studied classics, and then have spent, I guess, more than a decade piecing together this idea that sort of the pagan continuity idea that our sort of the Neolithic psychedelic beer brewing pagans became the pagans of Greece that then ultimately became the Eucharist, et cetera, that there's this continuation of religion that was psychedelic in its nature and that religion was experienced and not just preached from a book. That's I mean, that's a pretty good summary. I couldn't say Thank it better. You. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's I know a- there's so much nuance, which we need to get into. But like, can you sort of trace sort of from the prehistoric beer to prehistoric wine to like what you think happened? Sure. And it's important to say this isn't my idea that I'm standing on, on the shoulders of others. And it goes back probably to the 1950s or, or 60s even. I grew up watching Indiana Jones in the 80s and reading The Da Vinci Code when I was in my 20s. And after 13 years of Catholic school and a, a useless degree in Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit, I figured I was about halfway to being uh, a wannabe Indiana Jones or a Robert Langdon, but I needed a mystery. And so I dug into what is a genuine mystery from the ancient world. It's what Houston Smith, one of the greatest religious scholars of the 20th century, Houston called it the best kept secret in history. This idea of an original sacrament that fueled Western civilization and may even be responsible for the roots of religion as we know it, stretching back potentially a full 12,000 years to that moment when we left the the caves for the cities at what we call the agricultural revolution. And just maybe tens and tens of thousands of years before that, if not in to the hominins who who preceded us, which is an an even more entertaining theory called the stoned ape hypothesis. I don't go quite back that far, uh, but uh, I kind of artificially start at the agricultural revolution, because it's there you start to see some of these first sacraments really begin to come together. And what you find at the very origins of you know, what we call civilization is, is beer. And so what I learned is that beer is really freaking old. <laughs> and mic drop. End of story. <laughs> I don't even know how to say it. Gobleki Tepe. Is that how you say it? Right. Gobekli Tepe. Perfect. That's the Ice Age temple that was discovered relatively recently, right? Yeah, so it was. A, this first comes to public consciousness in the 90s. There was a, the German archaeological team led by Klaus Schmidt came across this in the 90s, and no one really paid attention for a while because it, it was so weird. I, I think uh, it was a National Geographic or a Smithsonian article that brought it onto my radar. It was the cover article uh, describing it as the world's first temple. And whenever you see a phrase like the world's first temple, you start to, to pay attention. And it's this just incredible assemblage of megalithic stonework that's just not supposed to be there. I mean, to put it in context, we think it goes back at least 12,000 years, which is a good 6,000 years before Stonehenge, a good mm-hmm. 7,000 years 
before all the high civilization and what we call civilization, the literate civilizations that we think of like Egypt and Sumer and India and Crete. And here's this 22 acre site with freestanding limestone rising 20 feet in the air, some of them weighing 50 tons. And we have no idea what the heck it's doing there. According to Schmidt, the lead archaeologist who's now deceased, he thought that what they were doing there was depicting the gods. And that, in fact, these T-shaped megalithic pillars are the first known monumental depictions of gods. And why the hunter-gatherers gathered there was for ancestor veneration, to get in contact with those who'd preceded them and what they thought were divine beings. And then sort of thanks to this new emergence of sort of archaeobotany and archaeochemistry, right, where they're actually taking these these found objects to the lab to understand what organic matter they held. They discovered that they were drinking psychedelic beer. Is that a fair synopsis? Well, we think we were drinking beer at least. Uh, oh, so beer. We don't know exactly when it becomes psychedelic. And we don't even know when beer becomes beer. But I, I flew all the way to Munich, Germany to talk with the world's top beer scientist who, by a weird coincidence, I was also on the phone with again today, Martin Zarnkow, who's just, he's classic. So I, I flew all the way there just to meet him. And he had no idea what the hell I was doing there. And so when he asked me what the hell I was doing there, I said, well, I, th I think that you may have found evidence for some of the first beer. And he said, we think so. And this was from analysis that they published it in 2012. And what they found uh, when they tested the residue on these giant uh, limestone vessels that could have held 42 gallons of something, what they found was the residue of calcium oxalate. And, and that's kind of a telltale biomarker or, or signal of beer fermentation. Now, I understand that they, they just went back and did more testing, and they're about to release a paper, the results of which are embargoed for the next couple of weeks. But there's new detail coming out of Gobekli Tepe. So stay tuned for that. And so, but so then you sort of trace this beer, not, and again, throughout, you're saying all of these things could have been occurring sort of serendipitously in these moments in time, in these various corners of the globe. But you also do sort of an incredible job of weaving together, you know, I think when we think about nation states now, right, like, we're like, well, there's Greece, and there's, you know, there's Italy. And you're, you sort of make the point that there are these sort of wayfarers, these they're not pirates necessarily, but like people sort of navigating the globe, bringing things to other people, right? In a way that shouldn't defy our imagination. It makes tons of sense. But that in the way that we think about sort of classic Greeks or classic Italians, like that doesn't really exist um, right. in the same way, right? So can you sort of tell us about, are they the, the Phaeacians? Uh, the the Phocians. Phocians, thank you. Right. These are uh, the, the crazy Greek. <laughs> but I, I get confused myself. There's Phoenicians who come after the, the Canaanites in, in the Holy Land. And there are these Phocians, which no one's ever heard of, by the way, uh, aside from Peter Kingsley, who's kind of a hero of mine, who, who writes about the ancient, uh, the ancient Greek world. The, the, the Phocians come from Ionia, which is modern day Turkey. So the Eastern Aegean. And the reason I focus on them is because is I'm looking for a way for all this beer from prehistory to get down to the Greeks. Now, when you think about ancient Greece, you don't think about beer drinking people. You think, obviously, like you do about the Italians, about wine. And there is a reason for that that we'll get into in the next part of the discussion. The beer, for me, was the, the prime target here, because what I was looking for was the answer to the first part of my question, which is, 
were the ancient Greeks doing drugs? And if so, how would they do these drugs? And there's this controversial hypothesis about psychedelic beer that was released in 1978 by a, a ragtag outfit of three guys, Gordon Wasson, who was this amateur mushroom hunter, former JP Morgan banker, Albert Hoffman, who mm-hmm. discovered L- LSD, and Carl Ruck, who then was the chair of the classics department at Boston University. And together in 1978, they released this book called The Road to Eleusis about what was essentially the spiritual capital of the ancient Greek world. We're, we're talking about potentially as old as 1500 BC, so far earlier, a thousand years earlier than the classical Athens that we think of. So this is before Jerusalem. This is before Rome. This is before Mecca. There was a genuine religion that called to the best and brightest that the ancient world had to offer. And we're talking about folks like Plato, who was Mm -hmm. initiated into these mysteries. And we're talking about folks like Pindar and Sophocles, and even Cicero, uh, the great Roman order. A few centuries later, he describes Eleusis as the most divine thing that Athens ever produced. I mean, so this was like their real religion. I mean, none of these guys were walking around thinking that Zeus was hurling thunderbolts at us hapless humans. The real religion for them was this temple dedicated to two goddesses, to Demeter and Persephone, in this small town, which is only today about 30,000 people, 13 miles northwest of Athens. They all made a pilgrimage to this temple to drink a magic potion and essentially to die or to witness this vision that is almost universally described as a defining moment in their lives, the the thing that erased the fear of death. And we know from the ancient literature that the ingredients of this potion were barley, water, and mint. And so it kind of reads like uh, an, an ancient recipe for beer. Right. And as you point out, and Hoffman points out, I guess, before you and Rock, is that the barley often was sort of ergot, right, is a fungus that's attracted to barley, which is essentially LSD. So that it's completely conceivable that was part of this creation, which, as you also point out, was made entirely by women. And again, I'm not attached to Christianity in the way that many people are. What what am I part of like the 29% of spiritual, not religious people that you talk about? But it's easy to imagine. I mean, that's that what they describe, and you make this point as well, is exactly what's described by people in the psilocybin studies and other people who've experienced psychedelics, right? Is this feeling, the fear of death evaporating and having one of the most meaningful experiences of your life to experience God, really, in some ways, or to experience some sort of universal force of love. Right. So it, it's funny, uh, you know, Aristotle uses the exact same word. We don't know if, if he was an initiate of the mysteries or not, but his one-liner is that the initiates went there not to learn something. He says mathain in Greek, which is where we get the word mathematics. They didn't go to learn something, but to experience something, pathain, to suffer, to, to have a visceral encounter with something. And so it, it's funny how you say it's conceivable because this idea of beer spiked with a psychedelic, I'm sure that Wasson, Hoffman, and Ruck back in 1978, I mean, they were convinced too. They thought it was conceivable as well. Nobody else did. (laughs) And it's a classic case of just the wrong book at the wrong time when the war on drugs is just heating up. And there was uh, a president at Boston University at the time where, where Ruck was, John Silber, who was very unfriendly 
to this hypothesis. And it's kind of conspiratorial to think that one man or, or the atmosphere in the country at the time could have anything to do with the public's reception of this idea. But I think it did, as a matter of fact. And I think it's part of the reason that this, this idea lied fallow for so long. And I think it is part of the reason why Ruck's career took a, a major nosedive in no uncertain terms. I mean, after the book came out, he was essentially deposed as chair of the classics department. He was cut off from graduate students. And uh, his colleagues were really discouraged from kind of working with him in an interdisciplinary way. And so when I look at the data, when I started reading this, Back in 2007, 2008, that was my light bulb moment because, again, I've never done psychedelics. I had no real interest in it, but I was sitting there on, on the 57th floor of my law firm, of all things, uh, reading an article in The Economist called The God Pill. And it's only a page long, but it just completely blew my mind because it was one of the first write-ups of these modern experiments coming out of Hopkins. And it was an immediate recognition of the potential of these substances. I, I will never forget the one-liner in there, about two-thirds of the volunteers walking away from their single experience of psilocybin, saying it was among the most meaningful experiences of their entire lives. Because when I hear language like that, I immediately think about Plato saying how he witnessed this vision at Eleusis in a state of perfection. Or I think about Cicero again, saying that this was the most divine thing Athens ever produced, that to see the mysteries is to pierce into the veil of death. And then as the years went on, obviously I'd read everything that Bill Richards at Hopkins or Tony Bossis at NYU was writing from a clinical psychological perspective and a psychopharmacological perspective, what's happening to these, I call them initiates, in the modern day experiments to me is strikingly similar to the very little testimony that survived from the ancient world. In both cases, we're talking about people encountering and then overcoming their fear of death. And if you want to be poetic, you could say becoming immortal. Right. No, absolutely. And when you think about the fact that these are uh, substances that occur in nature across the whole globe, right? And that are parts of important healing myths and ceremony for everyone, like you talk about Soma and in India and peyote for the Native Americans in Northern America. I, obviously, there's ayahuasca, there's ibogaine in Africa. Like these things have been cultivated and nurtured and used as sacraments in whatever, whichever way you want to define it in terms of religious terms for as long as we know, right? So this idea that that wasn't at play is kind of insane. I mean, it's particularly when you sort of later write about like, what was it that would have ignited this religion, you know, the religion of Christianity that would capture the imaginations of so many people for so long? Like, was it really just a book? And was it really just a man? And was it really just church fathers? Or was it something that was undeniably felt and experienced by the people who were, as you say, initiated? So can you tell us a little bit? Okay, so then... Then Ulysses, Eleusis sort of is destroyed, essentially, right? In was that destroyed by the Senate, or was that when the Dionysian mysteries were destroyed? It's it's a good question. So the mysteries uh, at Eleusis they disappear like all the Greek mysteries at around the end of the fourth century A.D. This is after Christianity has become legal earlier in the century under Constantine, and then become really the official religion 
of the Roman Empire. And it's one of those great questions, like, like you just asked, how did this illegal cult, and make no mistake, Christianity was illegal, right? They were throwing yeah. Christians to the lions. So how did this illegal cult in this kind of forgotten, neglected part of the empire over there in the East, in the Holy Land, how did that come to sweep the imagination of the ancient world? How did this illegal enterprise convert half the Roman Empire, some 30 million people in, let's say, 300 to 350 years. It's what my friend Bart Ehrman, uh, the early Christian scholar, he calls one, one of the greatest cultural transformations in history. And people write lots of great books about ways to answer that question. But the honest approach is that we just don't know. It was probably a bunch of different things. And when I look at Eleusis, and when others have looked to Eleusis and what the ancient Greeks were doing, it, it begs the question of whether there was an experience that was passed from the earliest Greeks to the earliest Christians, who, remember, were also Greeks themselves or Greek speakers, right? When Paul's writing his letters to the Corinthians, it's an hour west of Eleusis today. The Gospels are written in Greek. Paul's letters are drafted in Greek for Greek speakers. And for the Greek speakers at the time, there were certain experiences like the mysteries that I think wouldn't have been lost on them. And there seems to be a continuity between these Greeks and the Christians, but you have to find the secret sauce. And so my idea in trying to solve this puzzle was trying to first solve Eleusis and then try and solve what was happening with the original Eucharist. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. So what was happening and what are sort of you do a great job of sort of the synergies between Dionysus and Jesus and it's the Gospel of John, right? And right. how it aligns with sort of the Bacchae. So can you sort of take us through your reasoning as you sort of create this continuity from a, that's really not, again, like that these are the same people, right, that are being converted to what might be kind of the same thing. That's how that, that's why it's called the pagan continuity hypothesis. This this idea that you know after the death of Jesus, people didn't wake up in thirty three A.D. and then in thirty four A.D. everyone's a Christian. I mean, Christianity itself took those three hundred three hundred and fifty years to mature before it was even legal. So I refer to that whole period as Paleo Christianity, and to me, it's the most interesting part of the faith that now calls to two and a half billion people about a third of the planet, because th th there was something happening at that time. And so to really try and figure out what the Eucharist was for them when they talk about the blood of Jesus, 
it wasn't the first time in history that idea had been floated. You know, Greeks for centuries were referring to the blood of Dionysus in the same terms as this as this sacramental wine. And, and Karl Ruck himself has written about this quite a bit over the past 40 years, but I didn't really know what to make of it or how much stock to put in it until I'd solved uh, the first part of his mystery, which was what the heck was happening in Eleusis. If there was really an ergotized beer, I thought, and if I could find evidence for that, then it seems to me that all these crazy ideas about a psychedelic Eucharist may in fact be true. And so I went out of my way over the past few years and around Europe to try and find the very best evidence I could for psychedelic beer. And I think I found it. Here's how the crazy quest begins. There's no hard evidence for this stuff. And again, I, I like your phrase, how this is all conceivable back in 1978. And that's all it was. Because in the 42 years that have since elapsed, a couple problems pop up with this ergotized beer, this psychedelic beer theory. Number one, no one's ever been able to reproduce in the laboratory, an ergotized beer that actually had the effects that we think it did, the visionary effects. Now, Albert Hoffman swore that it was the case, and I'm inclined to believe him uh, because I actually went to the Wasson archives on Harvard's campus, and I was looking through their correspondence from the 1970s, and I found a letter that Albert Hoffman wrote to his co-author, Gordon Wasson, about experimenting uh, with different alkaloids that were present in, in ergot. Remember, now ergot produces LSD, lysergic uh, acid diethylamide, but it also produces other alkaloids. And according to Hoffman, again, the guy who should kind of know about this stuff, he self-experimented in the mid-70s with uh, ergonavine, which is another one of these alkaloids. And he claimed in this letter that it was five to 10 times more potent than psilocybin, which kind of made me sit back in my chair there at the archives for a second. And so I, I really wanted to, to let Albert lead me on this quest uh, because lots of folks have, have come around in the past few years offering lots of different clues to what potentially could have spiked that beer. Everything from the Amanita muscaria mushroom to psilocybin to all kinds of other things. Uh, and I really wanted to be true to Albert's uh, hypothesis. And so I really dug into this whole thing with ergot, which is why I went to that beer scientist, Martin uh, Zarnkow in Germany. And he confirmed for me that he says ergot is absolutely common. As a matter of fact, I mean, even modern brewers have to be careful with it because it, it, it's so common on rye, uh, not so much on wheat and barley, but certainly on rye, this stuff pops up all the time and it can be very toxic. As a matter of fact, there were massive outbreaks of what's called ergotism or St. Anthony's fire, it was sometimes called in the Middle Ages. People were just going into uh, delirium and losing their minds. And some people even think that ergot may be behind some of the, the witch crazes in Salem mm. in the New World. And so there's all this really interesting lore around ergot, uh, but again, very little hard evidence. So after talking to Zarnkal, again, I'm, I'm convinced that there must be data somewhere if this stuff is so common and Hoffman was so certain about his theory it had to be somewhere. So one day, a couple of years ago, I'm reading through a very obscure book in Spanish written by Spanish archaeologists called Elisa Guerra Doce. And it's about drugs in prehistory. And in this massive tome, there is a throwaway line to this potion that was dug up in Catalonia in northeast Spain in the mid 90s. And it seems to have tested positive for ergot. And I was like, what the hell? That, that can't possibly be, be true, number one, because Ruck's career has been tanked and he's never heard of it. If anyone should be looking for this stuff, it's Carl Ruck. 
and he's never mentioned it. And I consulted every classicist who would pick up the phone and talk to me in the course of my book research over the past 12 years. No one else had heard of it. I talked to every archaeobotanist I could talk to in Europe and also in America and every archaeochemist. And whenever I asked the question, hey, is there ergotized beer? The universal response is no. I frankly thought she was wrong or just the, the data was off. So I, I reach out to the archaeologist that she, that she mentioned in this, this brief passage. Her name is Enriqueta Pons, and she's still an active archaeologist in Spain. And, and I say, well, apparently you found ergotized beer. And she says, yeah, I think we did, but that was 20 years ago. Why are you interested now? Turns out she only published her finding in Catalan. So it wasn't even published mm. in, in Spanish. She, she published it in this massive 635-page volume in Catalan in 2002. And so she said, go look at it there. Uh, and I said, well, I can't look at it there because I don't have the book. No one can find this book. If, <laughs> if, if, if they could, <laughs> we wouldn't be having this conversation. So I went downtown to the Library of Congress, and they miraculously had a copy. And I opened this 635-page book up to this random passage in Catalan. And sure enough, they, they talk about this tiny chalice, two inches high, uh, that tested positive for ergot in the mid-1990s. And again, I, th I thought it had to be a mistake. And then I started looking into the history of this place, which is crazy because it's the last place any classicist would look, but it is one of the most brilliant examples of Greek influence in the ancient world. So the archaeologist talks about this little cup being found in a domestic chapel, number one, a chapel that was itself dedicated to the celebration of the mysteries for Demeter and Persephone, the same two goddesses from the Eleusinian mysteries. Along with that, in the very center of this room is an altar of Pentelic Greek marble that could only have come from Mount Pentelicus, northeast of Athens. In 2,500 pits that surround this chapel are all kinds of ritual objects that have been thrown in there by the people who used to visit this chapel. And they found things like Greco-Italic amphora, these wine vessels. And they found uh, this vase showing a Dionysian parade, basically, something that belongs in a dining room in Athens, not in a farm in Spain. And this is all dated to 200 BC, which is the perfect time for the Greek mysteries to be celebrated and not the perfect place because no one's ever heard of it. But turns out there was uh, a perfect mixing of cultures happening in, in this chapel. And so I had to go see it for myself. So I called up Professor Ruck in Boston and I said, you know, man, you got to come see this place because I think they found ergotized beer. So this is in February of last year. We fly to Spain. We go to this museum it's built inside a Romanesque cathedral from the 12th century. And it's like you're just walking into a movie set. As a matter of fact, an episode of Game of Thrones was shot in this very cathedral. So we walk in to the sweeping stone edifice and we head upstairs to this really humble museum. And there waiting for us on the table is this tiny little cup. And, and Ruck's reaction is this. This is not, this, this wasn't a cocktail party, he says. You know, the shape of the vessel, which is the exact shape of all the vessels that were used in the mysteries of Dionysus, the way it looks, it's this chalice with two handles coming out of either side. It could only have been used for a very ritual purpose. You know, you wouldn't, it's not the kind of cup that you drink a pint from. So the fact that ergot was found in it meant that it must have had this mysterious ritualistic aspect to it, something that would open the doors 
of the afterlife and, and potentially promise the exact same vision that people were having in, in Eleusis. So in my mind, this is some of the best evidence that's emerged over the past 40 years to actually support this crazy idea that the Greeks were in fact doing drugs to find God. And then sort of the idea of God as sort of a reimagining, not that Jesus wasn't a real man, that the stories surrounding Dionysus and Jesus are quite similar, and that you think that some of that language wasn't, I mean, maybe this, this might be, this is probably heresy, so I apologize. <laughs> but do you think in trying to, and essentially as the Dion, as Dionysus and those mysteries were sort of blown out by the, was it the Roman Senate, that they found sort of safe harbor under Jesus and this other sort of sacred magical cult, and that Jesus, the story of Jesus and the Mother Mary, et cetera, was essentially an, a re-explanation of Dionysus as a way to bring all those people to Christianity? Not I mean, a the, lie, well, but like yeah. sort of a, you know, here's another coming. I mean, that's the narrative that I try to recreate from the actual evidence. And, and I think it holds up because after finding this chalice of ergotized beer, and there's more work and more testing to be done on that, obviously. The next question is, was there really psychedelic wine? It's, I, I call it one of the most overlooked questions of the past 2000 years. I mean, we all have this image of Da Vinci's Last Supper, right? And, and these cups of wine on the table. But I mean, the obvious question to me is what kind of wine was it? Was their wine, was the wine of Jesus, anything like our wine? So you have to begin looking at the wine of the time. And the thing you immediately discover is that it's very different from our wine, is that their wine, Greek wine, and the wine that would have been used in the Holy Land at the time was routinely mixed with all kinds of stuff, whether that was you know, deadly toxins or spices and perfumes or, or magical plants, herbs, and fungi. Uh, wine is described in a way that we would never describe it. As a matter of fact, the ancient Greeks had no word for alcohol, which is, which is weird enough to begin with. And the word they use for this thousand-year tradition that connects Homer to people who were writing at the fall of the Roman Empire over a thousand years later is pharmakon, which is the Greek word for drug. That's mm. how they actually referred to wine. Alcohol, it comes from the Arabic. And when you start to dig in a little bit further, you find even weirder things. Like the Dionysus was not just the god of you know wine and ecstasy and mystical rapture. He was also the god of the theater and entertainment and where we get you know comedy and tragedy at the theater of Dionysus at the very foot of the Acropolis in Athens. When people went there, they didn't belly up to watch the Bacchae with a glass of beer and a hot dog. They didn't pop out during intermission with a, a fancy glass of champagne. They sat down with trima. And, and trima in Greek means rubbed or pounded. And it symbolizes the different ingredients that were rubbed into Greek wine. Because again, Greek wine is constantly described as unusually intoxicating and occasionally hallucinogenic and potentially lethal all across the literature of the ancient world. And I, specific, I focus specifically on the Materia Medica. Now, th this is one of the most durable manuscripts of the ancient world. It's written by Dioscorides, who is the father of drugs. And inside his Materia Medica, which survives uh, against all odds when a lot of this literature just disappeared, what survived are 56 recipes for wine spiked with different stuff. 
everything from absinthe to salvia to frankincense and, and henbane and mandrake and these very dangerous, very lethal, and sometimes very visionary plants, including what Dioscorides calls black nightshade, which he says in the Greek produces not unpleasant visions. So again, the minute you start looking into Greek literature at the time, at the exact same time Jesus was alive, by the way, and just afterwards, Dioscorides is in the first century AD, what you're finding are magical wines. And the question I ask is that when, not us today, but when an early Christian of the first century AD heard about the magical wine of Jesus, is it possible they would have heard or associated it with the magical wine of Dionysus? Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your 9 to 5 and the 5 to 9 plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Acer collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So can you also explain then, because like sort of underneath in Vatican City, right, underneath they found all these tombs, right, where they were doing these, where women were leading these. Yeah, the refrigerium. The refrigerium. Okay. I was going to, I'm going to stop trying to pronounce things I can't say. (laughs) (laughs) So was that happening before, was that BC or when was that happening? Yes, it would have been it would have been BC into the AD. I mean, it's the exact moment that we're looking mm-hmm. for. And it's that moment of paleo-Christianity that I mean, certainly wasn't discussed in my Catholic school and I don't think many folks have heard about, but what's interesting is that for those first few hundred years of Christianity, there were no churches, which right. is weird to think about. The so the early mass or the early Eucharistic celebrations all took place in one of two venues, either in house churches and just private homes, or they took place in in subterranean catacombs, some of which have survived. So the house churches, you know, we haven't really survived. We'd love to, to find evidence from one of the house churches in Corinth, for example, or Ephesus or Rome. We don't. But what we do have are what the Vatican itself has described as the most significant assets of the Paleo-Christian era, which is these catacombs, because inside this underworld beneath the streets of Rome is uh, the, these tombs, essentially, these family tombs filled with frescoes and images that leap off the wall with, of all things, women celebrating the Eucharist. And it was a, a major turning point for me to actually you know, descend under the streets of Rome with a Roman Catholic priest, by the way, who was uh, my, my sidekick and my, uh, my bodyguard for this journey, to examine these frescoes and what they have to teach us today about what was really happening in early Christianity. And what we find, no surprise, is an intercultural encounter, like we, like we talked about. People didn't go to sleep pagan and wake up Christian the next day. This, th- there was a moment of decades and centuries here where you can sense people struggling with this new faith, with this, even with this new Dionysus, who they call Jesus. And central to the celebration of those mysteries were women, specifically women and drugs. Uh, so I went into these catacombs to see what was really there. Yeah. And I mean, I'm a major Mary Magdalene fangirl. And, you know, 
Christianity, as you said, wasn't didn't really become a thing. It didn't until the what was it? 313 AD under Emperor Constantine and the Gospel of Mary was cast out, Philip, etc. All those, I guess Mary's wasn't found at Nag Hammadi, but you know, parts of the book, the various gospels that were deemed I guess unsanitary were kicked out of Christianity, but this sort of goes to this idea that not only was Mary the first apostle and the one who could apprehend Jesus when he rose and and receive all of his teachings who was it was it the woman who wrote when women were priests who says essentially that for a moment a brief moment in time mary magdalene was the church there was nobody else like she was the only one who carried the teaching so i love this idea of course like it's entrancing to think of women not only as the ones tending the eucharist but the ones holding that relationship for men and for women and really sort of serving as first healers, first doctors, the ones who hold all the herbal knowledge, which then, as you say, gets into witchcraft and when women were hunted down and, you know, burned alive and all that fun stuff. <laughs> I know. It's, I mean, it's, it sounds like Da Vinci Code heresy. It sounds like a bunch of conspiracy for late night YouTubing, uh, which I do plenty of. Uh, but, it, you know, this is the, the whole point of writing this book was to find the evidence. And if you go looking for it, I was really shocked to see the evidence that existed. When we talk about the mysteries of Dionysus, right, that this god of ecstasy, wine and theater, the question I ask is, could he also be the god of psychedelics? Because there, there's nothing to prevent it, just as there was nothing to prevent that ergotized beer, assuming the role of the central sacrament in the Eleusinian mysteries, I really dug deep into the Dionysian mysteries to see if there was magical wine there. And again, the things you begin to discover are that sure, wine was spiked with all this stuff, but that women were the ones doing the spiking. And uh, I cite the work of Ross Kramer, who's now at my alma mater at Brown. She wrote this great article in the late 70s uh, called Ecstasy and Possession, the Attraction of Women to the Cult of Dionysus. Throughout history, the Dionysian mysteries were female mysteries. And in fact, Euripides describes them as an immoral trick aimed at women. And it's believed that only women were allowed initiation into its practices and that only women would be in charge of mixing the sacrament. Sure enough, if you look at the letters of Paul, you find lots of women. And I don't know why these women aren't talked about in Catholic school. Maybe they are now, not when I was growing up. But you hear about women like Lydia who was the very first convert to Christianity in the entire continent of Europe. She was this well-to-do tent maker who, because she was wealthy and well-connected, she could afford to host one of these house churches that we're talking about. And she was succeeded by two other women, Euodia and Synthike. In, in Ephesus, it's the same story. It was a woman and her house church that helped give Christianity roots. Her name was Priscilla. And in Rome, there's tons. And these are all mentioned in Paul's letters. You hear about women like Mary and Trifina and Trifosa and Persis, and I'll stop with the Greek and just say Junia, who is described as, quote, in Greek, the foremost among the apostles. And it does kind of remind you of the way Mary Magdalene is described. And again, not to delve into conspiracy, I cite you know, who could reason that the guy who could reasonably be considered the premier scholar of, uh, of Joannine uh, research in the 20th century, Raymond E. Brown, uh, a priest, he wrote an article in the 1970s 
in which he does describe Mary Magdalene as the apostle to the apostles. If not the apostle on top of men, at least the, the one who should be considered co-equal to men. And it raises a very profound question about who was supposed to carry this message and who was supposed to consecrate the Eucharist. And you mentioned Mary's gospel, which was dug up in 1896 in Egypt. You know, do people even know that Mary had her own gospel and that she is depicted in that gospel as the one to whom the secret teachings of Jesus were shared? And she's the one in the very canonical gospel of John in chapter 20, verse 18, who says, like you mentioned, I've seen the Lord. She was the first witness to the resurrection. And for a time, she was the church. And with all that in mind, that's when I started to go into the catacombs to see what other evidence was there. Because if you just look at the Gospels, there's plenty to suggest that women were fundamental to the, the origin and survival of Christianity. Right. And then in the, thir- in the 300s, you get sort of the emergence of the patriarchy, right? And this idea that not only are women second class, if that, but this idea also that uh, priests and bishops, et cetera, guard that relationship with God. I think you call them God's bouncers, but that no longer should people expect to have a direct connection, which is exactly what Gospel of Mary says, like God is within you and we all have access to God through the heart. That's, I guess, the teachings of Jesus and that there is no sin. There's no such thing as sin. And so you have sort of the patriarchy emerge as this middleman and this idea that they're the ones who can interpret God, which is just kind of wild. I mean, it was hundreds of years after Jesus lived and died and a very selective editing, right? And I think we forget that, right? We assume, we feel like religion is something that emerged as this like sacred and whole complete entity. But the reality is that men have been in the middle of it the whole time. Yeah, God's bouncers. I, I like yeah. that phrase. It's, it, it, I think it ignores the evidence, frankly. I, I cited some of the evidence from the literature. Uh, there's abundant evidence inside these catacombs. And to be specific, since I haven't said as much yet, there are uh, a few different catacombs that I visited. Number one, the catacombs of Priscilla, which I think are open to the public as long as you make an appointment in advance. You can go to the catacombs of Priscilla and you can take a look at what's called the fractiopanis, uh, which in Latin is the breaking of bread. And what some people see are seven women seated behind a table with a very ritualistic meal of, of fish and wine in front of them. It's not a normal meal. This meal is taking place in a shrine that's called the Capella Greca, which is the Greek chapel. Again, kind of makes you think like the, of that Catalonian chapel where we discovered the ergotized beer. Um, now, we don't know what they were drinking or why, but if you go to uh, another catacomb, I visited the catacombs of Saints Marcellinus and Pietro, which are also open to the public. You can spelunk into the gloom to see frescoes that picture women, again, mixing and serving wine, but not just that. You don't have to just try and tease out clues from the pictures that aren't there. You can look at the words. Inscribed in Latin on the wall are phrases like miskemi, right? Which means mix it for me. The women's names are even included. It's miskemi irene, miskemi agape. Irene is Greek for peace and agape is Greek for love. So 
we don't know what the heck is going on, but you have women mixing up potions uh, with very Greek names. And in one or two frescoes, the very strange phrase occurs, porge me calda, or miske me calda. And calda, we don't really know what it means, but there was an author in the late 19th century who helped us kind of decipher this word. And the way he interprets calda is a mixture of wine, water, and he specifically uses this word, drugs. Mm -hmm. So we can reasonably assume that something was being mixed uh, by women in these early Eucharistic celebrations of the Mass that you know, stayed underground, frankly, once the Church Fathers uh, assumed the power of the Catholic Church. That these underground Masses went the way of paganism. They were buried and forgotten. In some cases, including under St. Peter's Basilica, there are catacombs. There's an Acropolis that I also went to visit. And, and underneath St. Peter's Basilica itself, you can go into the necropolis and you can find these ancient tombs where people were, were celebrating these very strange rituals to try and get in touch with St. Peter, to try and have a vision of St. Peter, you could say, or at least their dead ancestors. And then sort of this is not the main thesis of your book, but if you think about sort of these underground house churches or women carrying along the traditions of sort of maybe a psychedelic... Eucharist, like then you get into the hunting down of witches, which came later, which was essentially just the destruction of these long lineages of herbalists. And who knows? The, the, the women held the recipe. Yeah, it, it, it seems pretty clear that, again, women are holding the recipe. So, so even though uh, women are excised from the leadership of, of the church, it, it doesn't seem like this pharmacological know-how just disappears off the face of the planet. It goes even further underground or into secret circles or into uh, herbal medicine or, or folk healing. And in some cases, it finds its way back into the mainstream at like the medical school of Salerno, which of all things is just down the coast from Rome there on the western coast of Italy. It was the only medical school in Europe, we're talking 10th, 11th centuries, that accepted women into its ranks, which is an interesting coincidence. So some of the knowledge goes into schools like that, and other knowledge gets assumed by what we call the witches. And the other headquarters for witches in all of Europe just happens to be in Benevento, which is this town in Campania, east of Naples, again, also south of Rome, the same area where Christianity is you know, putting down these roots that would go and then colonize the world. You see uh, women potentially carrying on this tradition of drugged wine which is really interesting. Uh, and one of the things that gets glossed over in the history of witchcraft is that uh, there were ointments and unguents and potions that women were often attacked for and the inquisitors certainly went after. And some of those things could very well have been uh, hallucinogenic, psychedelic. I mention a, a few, but there's a treatise from the 1420s called the Errores Gazariorem, which basically accuses women of mixing up a heretical Eucharist. It very specifically says in Latin that they mixed their own kind of wine in order to, to desecrate, basically, the Eucharist. And this is one of the reasons, among many, that women were hunted down and labeled heretics. And where, you know, it's sort of that stunning discovery, I think it was in Pompeii, right? Villa Vesuvio. Mm -hmm. What's the timing of that? That's that definitely psychedelic brew. Was that, when did, when do they date that? 
Right. So the Villa Vesuvio, it's it's it, the the other big reveal in this book, aside from the ergotized beer, is the the evidence that actually uh, places psychedelic wine somewhere in time. And again, if you go and talk to all the archaeobotanists and archaeochemists across Europe and America, the answer that will come back to you when you ask them, is there any evidence for psychedelic wine? They say no. And they were probably right until after many, many years of pouring through these phenomenally boring journals online, I, I, I happened across an article from the year 2000, of all things. And it's, uh, it's the study of this farmhouse just outside Pompeii. It dates to pretty confidently to 79, because like everything else in the area, Vesuvius uh, destroyed it. So we can very systematically place this farm in the first century AD, again, just when Christianity is coming to Italy, just when potentially uh, this magical wine is coming to Italy. You know, I really wanted to try and find something, some hard evidence that would, you know, place this this wine somewhere in time and space. And so th- this article describes uh, essentially the wine that was mixed in these giant dolia, which is like a wine storage vessel. And what they found in there through the archaeobotanical analysis was, amongst other things, over 50 different species of herbs and plants and trees. What they found was opium, uh, cannabis, henbane, and the same visionary psychedelic black nightshade that Dioscorides was talking about at the same exact time. So with that alone, again, I think it's some of the best hard evidence for psychedelic wine that's ever been uncovered. And just like the ergotized beer from Spain, it kind of fell under the radar. And this stuff is not looked at, it's ignored, it's underreported. And fortunately, I'm talking to an archaeochemist at MIT, one of the younger archaeochemists, Andrew Coe, who this is his passion project, essentially. He's responsible for finding the world's oldest wine cellar in, in Israel. And he goes all over the Mediterranean looking for this stuff. And we are trying to reanalyze this wine with modern methods to see what else is there. And so going back to, I know you sort of managed to weasel your, I won't, weasel is a mean word, but weasel your way into the Vatican secret archives, right? Using your your good friend, Father Francis, and a lot of persistence, I'm sure. And then you started looking through all the sort of the extended campaign, you call it, that would execute at least 45,000 witches. And the fact that this, it was often mothers and daughters, right? Because these recipes were pointed or passed down from generation to generation. And you talk about Lucretia, who was, I think, 1400s maybe. And I just wanted to read this paragraph to you because I feel like it's so, it sort of points right to it. Could all this be at least part of the reason, largely unstudied by modern historians, why witches represented the most dangerous of all enemies of the human race and the Christian church? That last part was in quotes. What is more threatening to the institutional integrity of the Vatican than a Eucharist that provides a true beatific vision? If Lucretia and her sisters could properly consecrate a Eucharist for themselves, what was the point of a priest? And if they could establish a direct pipeline to God, perhaps the way it was always meant to be, what was the point of the church? Is there really anything more worth defending than the Eucharist? And I think sort of speaking to that, of course there's nothing if you're trying to maintain power, right, and keep the the patriarchy propped up, of course you want to you want to defend the Eucharist. But the rest of it, I think, sort of speaks to this idea that we're sort of living in a world where we were never supposed to be 
so distanced from our connection to nature, to source, to whatever it is that you want to call it, to that inner knowing. And that I guess it was Huxley, right, who prophesied in 1958 that that these substances and this that these psychedelics, which at the time were sort of at the forefront of, I mean, I think most people know who listen to the podcast sort of the history of psychedelics and how the war on drugs pushed them underground, but that there was all this incredibly exciting research emerging at that time. And that he, you know, Huxley and others were saying that this was the revival of religion. You know, this experience was what would reconnect us to the planet and theoretically maybe our survival as a species. It feels essential, particularly at this very precipitous moment in time, that we all find our way back somehow. And it feels also like if we're going to go, if I'm going to be my woo-woo goop self, like we're trying to find our way home in some ways. We're all trying to understand our greatest, greater purpose. Why are we here? We all want that experience, going back to the beginning of the conversation, for ourselves. And it's only, I think, through that connection to some sort of universal force energy to each other, to the planet, that we're going to survive. Again, getting back to Albert Hoffman, he he talks about that concept, and, and Huxley too, they, they were both prophesying in a way. And this goes back to the 1950s and 60s. Huxley talked about a time in the future when certain, quote, biochemical discoveries would be available to make it possible for what he says, large numbers of men and women to achieve a radical self-transcendence and mm-hmm. a deeper understanding uh, of the nature of things. And Albert Hoffman looked to psychedelics as the thing that could, you know, reconnect us to, to nature. And, you know, yeah. part of the reason I wrote this book is to try and figure out if, you know, are these new ideas, what's happening at Hopkins and NYU and what Huxley and Hoffman were, were talking about? Is this really the answer to the world's ills? Is this just, is, is this a modern fad or is there history here? Is there real substance here? And what I found out is that there, there is substance to this idea of people taking religion into their own hands, particularly women. And there was always this concept of looking to Christianity, for example, of a right Eucharist and a wrong Eucharist. You know, Father Francis, my guru, who you mentioned, he's quick to point out that there was never one monolithic version of Christianity, not when it was born and not 2,000 years later today. If, if you look up, you might find the stat that says there's something like 33,000 different denominations of Christianity. And I don't think it was quite that many in the beginning. But again, there, there were always people who wanted an unmediated experience of God, right? And yeah. so from the very beginning, Paul is yelling at the Corinthians for mixing the wrong wine. The church fathers are yelling at the Gnostics for mixing the wrong wine. The inquisitors are coming after the witches for mixing the wrong wine. Uh, and I, I talk about even how this was carried over into the New World. Uh, in the 17th century, there were people under the direction of the Vatican who were burning drugs in, in some of the first uh, drug prohibition campaign. And that carried on through the Protestant missionaries and now the American federal government. But we're at this really weird moment where you know, I read the studies coming out of Hopkins and NYU. And again, I, I think back to the early Christian mysteries. I think back to the ancient Greek mysteries. And what I see are small groups of people looking to commune with God, whatever that means, the being of beings uh, on their own terms, and the possibility that these sacraments 
exist to help facilitate that, which is the reason they've always been there. I mean, the church does have a Eucharist after all. You know, you could just clap your hands together and pray to God, but that's not what Jesus says. It's not what the gospels say. There's, There's this concept of wine. And at Eleusis, there was this potion. You know, people, again, just didn't pray to the heavens. There were biotechnologies available to them, it seems. And, you know, more analysis will tell us what was out there in terms of the beer and the wine. But, you know, I think about that quote from Huxley about these biochemical discoveries. Are we living in a moment now where the technology is available in the safest way we know how, the most efficacious way we know how, to deliver a really meaningful mystical experience for people using these sacraments. Now, it's all legal. That's going to change in five years. And, you know, my big question is, what happens in 10 years? What what does the future of religion look like if this was the past and more research only confirms what was happening in our past? If these are our foundations, what comes next? And what I think, you know, you sort of loosely circle this concept in the book, but you talk about sort of this idea, too, of sort of the 1% to the 99%. And we know Jesus was not a snob, you know, he was hanging out with the lepers and the prostitutes and the sinners. This was not supposed to be something that was carved out for pharaohs only, right? This was the idea, I think, of Jesus is that it's available to all of us internally. And I think we all need that experience. And yes, I do think it will soon, hopefully soon enough, be available because while I'm not contrary to what people might think, like I don't do psychedelics every weekend by any means, but I've looked at the research too and their powers to heal and connect and calm are so profound. It feels like we all, we need it in the water, you know, it seems like we're at that point in time. I, th- I think we're headed back, maybe not for spiking the water, but I, I think <laughs> another water to wine miracle. I think what we're headed towards is I say in the book, I don't think we're going back to Woodstock. What, what I, I think when you talk to a guy like Tony Bosses at NYU, I think what we're headed towards is the responsible incorporation of this tradition into the modern world. Now, to be clear, the, what, what he is doing, what the folks at Hopkins are doing is, is rigorous clinical research. And they expect that these medicines will be available for certain conditions like anxiety, depression, maybe even end of life distress, which is really interesting. It's very possible that we see FDA approval for this stuff in the next five, five years, maybe longer, maybe less. But again, my question is what happens after that? And you know, I, I entitled the, the subtitle of my book, The Religion with No Name, not the spirituality with no name, because you know, religion is something that is protected under the First Amendment. And religious exercise would, it would include anything, uh, and this is how it's defined in the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, wearing my legal hat, but it, it's defined as uh, any exercise of religion, whether or not compelled by or central to a system of religious belief. And w- what I think I've uncovered here is a genuine system that goes to the very roots of Western civilization, maybe even early Christianity. You know, we had our religious technicians just like you would find in South America, or just like you would find in in any traditional setting. You know, it existed in the West as well. And maybe this is a moment when it gets resurrected in a very responsible way with trained personnel in safe, secure settings where people can have, and I call for a one-time experience, just like Mm -hmm. it was in in Eleusis. It was one moment in your life where you availed yourself of this technology to have the experience that defined your life and erased 
the fear of death. That might be possible in 10 years. Are you, I know you hadn't wanted to, you didn't want to dabble in psychedelics sort of to not have that agenda in writing this book, but is, will there come a moment in time when you'll have your elusis moment? As soon as it's legal. Yeah. I think, oh, you know, I God, feel- you're such a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, you know, I think about this every day, obviously. And I, I, I honestly think there are lessons from these mysteries, which is why I've been obsessed with these Greek and Christian mysteries since I was 14 years old. And, and I think there are lessons there that we can bring back today. I just, I really, I, maybe I'm risk averse. I just don't believe in, in self-dosing and running off to the woods. I think, and, and I don't think I'm alone either. I, I, I think that folks are looking for guidance. And when you look into the ancient world, you find uh, this, again, this system for initiating people. It was a long, rigorous process of mentorship and education and various grades of initiation. And then this powerful experience with experts and then reintegration back into everyday life. Maybe not in the Bacchanals, but I mean, certainly in Eleusis and elsewhere. And I think it's for me, it's, it's like, it's really compelling to think about resurrecting that kind of technology today and what that would look like in in a government approved center where you have the technicians of today and where you have the priestesses of today there to help guide you through this life-changing experience that to me is is pretty much what i'm dedicating my life to over the next 10 years (laughs) well i'm glad that your legal mind is on it and to be fair i think it's a big deal as well so i'm not a fan of people just you know, I think it's real medicine and needs to be approached with respect. So I'm teasing and I'm not teasing because, you know, like in in, Dion, in the time of Dionysus, there are priestesses underground who I certainly think that the lineage has been carried on successfully despite the attempts to stamp it out. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Brian Murrescue. For more from Brian, pick up a copy of his fascinating book, The Immortality Key. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.